that's a lot of people ask, you know, how did you make a name for yourself? And you're competing against those. The sack facilities were the big thing back then, the speed, agility, and quickness facilities, the indoor turf fields. Like, they were all kind of competing against each other. Then you had this guy in a storage closet that didn't even, you know, barely had room to fit four or five kids in the gym. But I, I was focusing on the things that they weren't. That was Joe DeFranco talking about his beginnings in training athletes out of a 500-square-foot gym, outdoing the local speed, agility, and quickness gurus, and the grassroots beginning of becoming an internationally known sports performance brand. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The KBox and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches, training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 72 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I am thrilled to have on the line today Joe DeFranco of DeFranco's Gym. Joe was one of the first coaches that I remember reading and learning from in the world of performance training. And his adaptations of the Westside Barbell system into athletic performance, it makes up some of my earliest memories of performance training. Uh, Joe, in that time, and, and even then, Joe was well known, but since then, his gym has done nothing but skyrocket on the world scene, becoming an immensely successful brand. Uh, and he also has had experience training many, many top combine performers, NFL draft picks, as well as successfully branching out into other sports and disciplines such as MMA and even professional wrestling. So the, the brand DeFranco is so well respected and so well known. So on the podcast today, many know Joe DeFranco, but I feel like not many people know of his beginnings in the industry, where he started from, and I really wanted to get today into that history of that 500 square foot gym where he started from, and not only started there, but thrived there. I think it's it's one thing to say, yes, I started here, and then we, we slowly branched out, and, and now we're successful, but it's another thing to go on the how and the why of what made that space, what made his training, what made Joe's philosophy what it was, what made it catch fire, and how did he get such great results and continue to get great results as he expanded his uh, his gym and his system. So I, I, love, uh, I really enjoy talking to coaches like Joe because they have a in-the-trenches mentality. So that's a theme that you're going to hear multiple times on this podcast is the answers are in the gym. 
And Joe is straightforward, he's genuine, and he's awesome at, just as I said, finding those answers in the gym. So uh, in speaking with Joe, you certainly realize what has allowed him to achieve the success he has so far. And we're going to talk, obviously, about his beginnings and where and how DeFranco's has become what it is today. But we're also going to talk a little bit about the things like the formation of his West Side integration into athletic programming, how the West Side for Skinny Bastards came around, which is actually really interesting, especially maybe if you're looking in light of some of the things uh, like a prior podcast, like Mike Boyle's podcast and episode, as well as uh, how he's adapted. Speaking of Mike Boyle, how he's adapted single leg training over the years. We're going to talk a little bit about upper body training for athletes, foot training, we're going to talk about some of the old uh, Joe, things you might have heard from Joe back in the day, like uh, 50 rep rhythm squats and, and big toe training and those things, and what his uh, take and opinion and thoughts are on those as he's gone through the years, as well as some other thoughts on core training and hamstring training. So uh, overall, love talking to Joe. He is a amazing coach in person, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. Uh, before we get to it, uh, last but not least, uh, if you leave us a podcast or leave us a rating in review on iTunes, and I read it on the air. We'll hook you up with some Simply Faster or Just Fly Sports gear. So uh, today's uh, review I'm going to read is by RAA80, uh, which says, awesome podcast. As a former D1 track athlete and strength and performance coach, this is definitely my favorite go-to podcast. Joel has some of the most knowledgeable experts in the industry provide listeners with training tips and insight on how to effectively train athletes. I definitely look forward to listening every week. So thanks, uh, RAA80. Uh, shoot us an email in the contact us on Just Fly Sports so I can get you the codes to uh, be hooked up with your care package. So with that said, let's get on to the show, episode 72 with Joe DeFranco. All right, Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you uh, putting up with my cancellations and my tardiness and everything else. I'm glad we finally got it done. Well, hey, someone as busy uh, and successful as yourself, totally worth it to get you on. I'm just, you know, your your stuff was some of the first that I read in in the industry and, and in working and being a strength and conditioning or even even track and field and speed myself. So uh, excited to to get going with the conversation and can we all kick it off? I mean, obviously most people listening are very familiar with you with who you are, but I'd like to just ask you what were your beginnings in the industry how did defranco's become uh, what it is today the the kind of quick story is i studied exercise physiology exercise science in college and got a internship i had to do an, an unpaid internship as my final 12 credits did that at a another gym ended up working there for five years uh the Precy speed school is where i started my kind of professional career after five years, I left, you know, I didn't really have, as anybody in this industry knows, you don't really make a ton of money, uh, especially, you know, as a personal trainer. Um, and that's where I was at. I was 27 uh, when I decided I wanted to, you know, kind of go and do things on my own. Didn't really have a ton of money. The little that I had saved up, I had enough to buy about three pieces of equipment. I had a, a power rack, a reverse hyper, and a glute ham bench and uh, I went to the gym that I trained at when I was in college when I would have a, a winter break or summer break I used to work out at a gym by my house and I got to know the owner a little bit and he was still the same owner when I had left Parisi's and um, I, I was looking into becoming a college strength and conditioning coach and th that fell through I had a couple offers that I thought were going to 
um, happened, but they didn't. And then I just needed to find a spot to start training people. And it was one of those kind of desperate things where didn't have a ton of money, didn't have anywhere to go. I knew I needed some kind of a home base. So I went to that gym and I was going to ask them if I could kind of run my business, have my own little personal training business out of his gym. And then he happened to have a storage closet in the the downstairs, you know, of that health club. There was a room in the back corner that was around 500 square feet. And he was like, let me show you this room. Can you do anything with that? And it was it just had old broken down like pieces of office furniture and cobwebs and spiders. And uh, to me, I was like, oh, man, this is gold. Like, I go, are you kidding me? I I'll clean this thing out tomorrow. And he goes, man, I'll, if you'll take this, I'll let you rent out this room. And if you will, you know, he gave me a, a rent. He goes, I'll let you rent out the room. I'll help you clean it out because for me, it's just sitting here the last 20 years. So it's all yours. And that became, you know, the first DeFranco's, which is now the legend, legendary storage closet gym. It was, people still ask to this day, was it really a storage closet? It was literally a storage closet in the basement of a existing health club. And that's where it all started. That's, that's awesome, man. So those, uh, those three pieces of equipment you mentioned, like how did that 500 uh, square foot space, what was like the layout or what were the, how did you manage that? <laughs> it's, it's not much of a floor plan. It was just kind of like the, it was, a, it, it, the thing that was weird too, it wasn't even like a perfect square or rectangle. It was an odd 500 square feet. So it looked even smaller. I had in one corner, there was a part that was a rectangle. Then there was like a little piece. And then there was another little cutout, which I made my office. I put a, a, he had an old wooden desk that was in the storage closet that I was like, just leave that in there. I'll use that as my desk. And then the, the biggest wall, which wasn't that big, that's where the, the squat rack, the power rack was. And then on each side, the two far sides, which wasn't you know, too far from the from the rack, you had a, a reverse hyper and a glute ham. And then, of course, you know, the accessories. I had a couple barbells I threw up in the corner of the gym, bands, chains, weight plates, and, some, you know, some of those accessory type of things were just kind of scattered. I, I had to organize them as, as neatly as possible just to conserve as much space as possible i had a bench you know like a um a bench to to use for i used it for everything step ups bench pressing single leg squats i had one bench in there that uh we brought in and out of the power rack and and that was that was pretty much it there's a couple pictures still floating around uh people always ask like i post posted some pictures on my social media and they'll say like oh i wish you had you know, pictures of the entire facility. And meanwhile, that was the entire facility. Like one picture is all you need to get a, a glimpse of the, the entire storage closet. It, it was really only 500 square feet and it was really a storage closet. <laughs> yeah, you didn't need the, the iPhone panorama shot for that thing. No, <laughs> we did not need or have those back then. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of like when you go into Ikea and you see like the little like 300 square foot apartment setup they have with everything in like the corner. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like this. Uh, that's, that's crazy. I imagine that kind of put a like made you be either be very creative or relocate for any sort of like SAQ work if that was even possible in there. I mean, were you able to do anything dynamic in that space? 
we were able the ceilings were high enough to jump which was great we could do box jumps um but no i there's no kind of obviously you're not running in a 500 square foot storage <laughs> closet it, i i always say though it, it it made me a much better coach and trainer because obviously you need to really you have to think a lot more because you don't have access to that much so you need to make the best of what you have and that's a lot of people ask you know how did you make a name for yourself? And you're competing against those. The sack facilities were the big thing back then, the speed, agility, and quickness facilities, the indoor turf fields. Like, they were all kind of competing against each other. Then you had this guy in a storage closet that didn't even, you know, barely had room to fit four or five kids in the gym. But I, I was focusing on the things that they weren't, you know, one of the issues I saw with the SAC facilities was all they did was speed and, and quote unquote quickness training where they just had kids doing a lot of drills. It was a skips and tr try to teach, you know, a nine year old how to do a proper B skip, which is a disaster and all these fancy kind of track and field drills. And a lot of the kids, you know, they do 25, 50 sessions and then they would do a post test and none of them, I, I'm not going to say none of them got faster, but a lot of them, um, you know, would stay the same. Some of them would even get slower because, you know, they weren't addressing the root of the problem for many of them, which was strength and flexibility or combination, usually a combination of both. So in the 500 square feet, I didn't do much, if any, running, sprinting. It's certainly not optimal, but I think I got away with it because strength and flexibility was probably the biggest limiting factor if you had to choose just one or two in most athletes. So I was focusing on that. And then I was having these high school kids, uh, these high school combines started to become really big and popular back then. College coaches would go to them. Uh, things have changed now, but at that time they were big. And most of my guys were going there and they were getting the fastest 40 times, the highest vertical jumps, the best shuttles. And that's how I developed a name for myself. It was like, how come the kids that are, that are wearing these DeFranco's training shirts, they're always the fastest, you know, most powerful, most explosive kids. Isn't that that gym that's a storage closet? Like they don't even <laughs> do any sprints there yet. All these kids are the fastest kids at the combine. And that's, that's what put me on the map in my local town and County originally you know you know and then when we grew and i had a bigger facility where we could actually start incorporating some sprints into the mix the results obviously got even better but uh that's how i made my name during the early years you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster that's a that's a great story it uh it has me thinking of so many things and one of one of which is just like yeah i totally agree with you like just teaching nine and ten year olds how to do a and b skips is like you know parents think oh that looks like training but it's like is that really yes. doing anything probably not <laughs> like a lot of that stuff i uh i think it's so cool too how and i've thought of this i think it was coming off like watching a minimalist documentary i was like well what if you know university strengths coach setting where i'm i'm at it's like, what if we were just only allowed to use like three pieces of equipment and then it made us like, instead of having the battery, it made you think about every piece you're using so much more and you have to like really detail it out and get so much out of that. And I think that is so awesome with how you started. I think a lot of us could benefit from that, Mattel, even if we have everything sometimes. Yeah. And you know what? That's that was the, <laughs> the funny thing was for me, I previously worked in that 30,000 square foot mega facility, but 
But the so I knew what it was like to have access to that stuff. But the big joke was even when I was working at Parisi's and I had the indoor turf field and we had a six lane Mondo track, like we had access, the, the facility was the best, um, especially at that time. So way, you know, head and shoulders above anything else out there. But the joke was like, DeFranco was always in the corner with his athletes, you know, at the power rack in this little, probably about a, a 500 square foot corner of the gym. And that's where I would get most of my work done with my clients because I was focusing on what I felt they needed the most. You know, we'd use the track and the and the field to warm up on and we'd run some short sprints, but the 90% of my days were spent in the corner of the gym. So for me, the 500 square foot facility, it, it wasn't much different uh, training wise. It was just a little, it took a little getting used to with clients because they were used to me working at this, you know, mega, mega facility. So it's a little bit of a culture shock when you walk in and you go, what, this is, this is it, this is the gym. But then the results started speaking for themselves and that's all that matters in the end. Yeah, I, I love that. I It makes me think too, I, I just posted an Instagram uh, post from out of a, the little book of talent book and it talked about like when it's too nice, when your facility is almost so nice, then it's like gives you that impression like you've already made it and having that like really yeah. Spartan, like dungeony feel is so, I think that's really underrated in a lot of cases. I agree. And look, it's that's the one thing I'm certainly, you know, I don't, uh, you know, the whole, I don't use CrossFit with anyone that I train, but the one thing I always say that CrossFit did almost make that cool. You know, we, before there was ever a such thing as a CrossFit box, I had my 500 square foot storage closet facility, which is, that's what is now considered a box. You know, I did my style of training in there, but from an outsider who doesn't know much, if you just, if I showed you a picture, I showed you video of something that went down in that gym, whatever that is now, 20 years ago, somebody now would say, oh, that's, uh, you had a CrossFit box. Like they definitely have popularized, helped, you know, popularize that, that kind of hardcore minimalist feel, which I, I like, you know, not everybody's after just, I call it the carpet and chrome gyms that look fancy and have granite countertops in their, in their locker rooms. Like people are now going to the gym to work at least. And I like to think we, we were, you know, one of the, one of the originals and now CrossFit just kind of made it a little bit more popular. Yeah. I love that. Uh, DeFranco's gym was like the original box, <laughs> the original yeah, yeah. Uh, box gym. Uh, Joe, who were some of your earliest mentors in the field? You mentioned you worked at Parisi's and like through the years, uh, who are some key figures that kind of helped develop the, the training ideology that you took on? Uh, training wise, definitely, you know, I always give credit to my dad. He's like the original, original mentor when, from when I was born till I could, you know, talk and crawl, I wanted to start training because he was always into training and being strong. And he had a, a hardcore gym, not that he made a living off of, he was a New Jersey state trooper, but he had uh, a private gym for police, fire, military personnel in, in our area he competed in powerlifting and arm wrestling and trained me for football. So he started it and probably instilled in me that atmosphere, you know, like the box that we're talking about, or to me, it was the Rocky Balboa type of gym. Um, my dad instilled that the work ethic, you know, the, 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 that kind of original training style. And then as I studied more and got more into the science behind training, I gravitated 
towards Louis Simmons, West Side Barbell. I got to meet Dave Tate, become friends with him. Um, I went to a lot of Charles Poliquin seminars early in my career. Uh, Fred Hatfield was another one. Power, his book Power was one of the first books. Uh, it might have been the first training book I ever read. It's either that or Dinosaur Training by Brooks Cubic, which is uh, a an underrated one you don't hear too much about anymore. But though those are the names that pop into my head um, the most when I think of the early years of, of training and what really kind of molded me into quote unquote my style of training now. Yeah, I like that. There's so many books too that were written back a while ago that have so much value that I think that we we always we always are looking at these books like oh this is the new thing this is awesome but it's like there was a lot of awesome stuff that was that yes. was written decades ago that has so much value. That's why I still tell people I people kind of look at me like like uh, I have two heads when they say well what what book what's the first uh, I'm getting into this field what do you recommend like what's the first book I should get and a lot of times I'll tell them dinosaur training and they're like what like but I, what I like about it is kind of what we just talked about. Yeah, and I, I think Brooks Kubik is like a lawyer. I don't, you know, I don't think he claims to have any kind of background in exercise phys or, you know, kinesiology or anything. He's just a dude that liked to train hard. And his thing was he had a rack in his basement or in his garage and he just trained with a barbell and a rack. And I think that's important to start with all the things you could do with just that one basic piece of equipment to this day is still the, if you ask me, you know, what's the staple in a gym, if, if I could only get one piece of equipment, it's, it's a rack, you know, with, with a barbell and, and weights. That's, that's number one. And that book really, you know, just has some great information on getting strong with a barbell and a rack and it's just got a good message of hard work and you know it's it's pretty tried and true and i think it's a good foundation to start with and then start building on that and get a little more fancy and expand on it but um to me that thing i i've read a hundred times and i couldn't recommend it enough yeah that that uh old school style training like the rocky style mentality and that culture i think a lot of coaches almost go in reverse like they start with all the science and then they kind of yes. find that <laughs> over time like oh yeah this is what i've been missing and and that's cool that you started there and then grew grew out yeah i i i think more people need to do that we, there's too much information out there now you know it's too easy to start like you said, you still, if you're going to build a house, you got to start with the foundation. You don't start by building the roof. You know, it's, it's impossible yet. People try to build their careers that way. And I think that's why we see so many come and go. The longer you're in this field, the more people you go, man, what happened to him? What happened to her there? They, they, you know, couldn't stand that. They didn't last the test of time because they started, um, wrong. You know, they, they didn't start with the basics like they should have. Yeah, I, I agree. And that leads me into my next question as well. So, and that's what are some of the things that you feel have allowed you to be so successful in this field? And what do you think some things that are kind of holding a lot of coaches back from reaching their potential are? For me, is that it's first and foremost, it's just an obsession, I think, because I, I talk about it all the time. I'm not the smartest guy in this industry, nor am I even close, but I've, I've now been around making a living doing this for 20 years. 
Um, you know, I'm proud of what I've accomplished, the, the resume of athletes that I've helped. And certainly not because I'm the smartest. It's certainly not because I had the most money or the nicest facilities, you know, growing up. But it was just an obsession. I loved this industry and I was obsessed with it. And especially during those early years, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about having a family and kids and how things kind of change a little bit. But for the first 15 years for me in this industry, like my, my professional career, I didn't have a wife. I didn't have kids. It was, I was a single guy obsessed with being the best in this industry, training myself, training my clients. If, if I had one second off, I was reading a book on training. If I had one day off, I was going to a seminar, you know, that's, that's the type of foundation that was built. You know, people might see me now and I, these 22 year old kids come up to me and, and they'll say their first question is, how do I get my, my first pro athlete client? How do I, how do you get to train celebrity clients like triple H or Stephanie McMahon? That's the wrong question. Like you need, don't, don't try to copy that. If, if, if you are someone who admires what I've done and, and that makes me, you know, it's humbling and I'm very proud of it, but don't, don't try to be like me. And I guess that goes in the next part of your question. It's like, why do most people fail or, or a mistake they make? They try to be, you know, whoever they look up to They're They're trying to be the second Joe DeFranco, or they're trying to be the next Louis Simmons. That, that doesn't, that that's the most un Louis Simmons thing you could do because he would never copy off of anybody. And, and myself included, I respect a lot of people and I've learned, I have a laundry list of people I've learned from, but man, you you need to be yourself. And that's one way, the easiest way to separate yourself in this industry is to be yourself because there's only one of you out there and nobody's gonna be a better you than you. So, you know, we could talk training all day, but if you're trying to be the next coming of someone else, people are gonna see through that and you're gonna look like a cheap ripoff of that trainer or that coach. So. Yes, it's great. I've had mentors. I've had people I've learned from and admired. But at the end of the day, you need to put your own spin on it and do your own thing. And, you know, that's where uh, I think I've been able to be successful. I've I've had somewhat of a unique approach to go with that that obsession and the tunnel vision I talk about of just being focused on this one goal uh, and doing it consistently for the last 20 years um and obviously all that's great you still need to get results in this industry you need to get results with your clients you need to be able to communicate with people you could be the smartest coach in the world if you don't know how to you know relay that message and speak speak to certain athletes with different personalities you're never going to make it either uh, i think we all know a lot of coaches that are very smart and could regurgitate studies and and are know every everything there is to know yet they can't you know they're 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 uh, have a gym and they go out of business or they can't get clients they're the the communication and the 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 human part of this business is very real and not enough people uh you know put stock enough stock into that you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster.
Yeah, I, I cannot agree more. And every year I certainly learn more about just how important that human side is. And I think yeah. that's just such awesome advice. I, you mentioned tunnel vision too. And I think with like social media today, it's like so many coaches are just like, you know, always looking at social media for validation or seeing what else someone else is doing. And um, I, I think that that is something that you, you just mentioned. I've heard you talk about before that I really respect and I think is really important um, just to be, to be your best, to stay true to yourself, like you said. And, you know, another thing that go along with that is be, you, you need to be patient. Like, and I'm, I, I go through each day, like I'm very impatient as I'm sure you were talking about being busy and having a million things going on. And yeah, I'm going a hundred miles an hour and, you know, I want results fast and I want to, you know, I always want to keep moving forward. So like in the day to day, you're working as if you're impatient maybe, but as far as the success, the that that first pro athlete hiring you, uh, the Instagram following growing, it, like all that type of crap, you need to be patient for that. Because again, people might look at someone like me now and say, "Oh wow, he's got you know all these pro athletes on his resume. He's got a pretty good social media following." But you got to realize, I've been doing this for twenty years. You know, like that didn't happen overnight. It, it's it's 20 years of nonstop work. I didn't, I didn't start my storage closet gym and a week later, you know, say, Oh, how come I, this gym isn't packed with pro athletes? You know, you need to, you need to put the work in. And that's another reason why I don't think, or I think there are a lot of people who don't succeed in this industry. They want the million Instagram followers tomorrow and they want a bunch of pro athletes tomorrow. Yet the, the one client that they're training you know, can't even do a proper hip hinge or a body weight squat. And they're wondering like, where's the pro athletes? How come they're not knocking down my door? Like focus on what you need to do today. Be great at today. And those days will add up. It'll come. But if you try to rush it and, and you try to go from one client to 20 NFL football players, it's just unrealistic. It's not going to work. Yeah, I love that about like being present and right now is the most important thing and yes. and, and such a huge message. Uh, so talking about the training a little bit, and I'd love to jump into some training questions now and just talking about, uh, you had mentioned your mentors and, and Louis Simmons a little bit. So uh, what were the inspirations behind that original kind of West Side style for football and then that turning into West Side for Skinny Bastards? Um, and how did uh, that training kind of get formulated over time? I guess in the beginning, I tried everything, you know, it was whatever I saw, I read, I tried, you know, got confused. I was into Olympic weightlifting for a while. I, I thought that was the way because that's what every college and, you know, strength and conditioning coach did. You needed to do power cleans. And uh, I, I got into that. And then I started reading more about high intensity training and one set to failure and was like, oh, wait, is that the way? And so, again, it didn't happen overnight. This was literally years of being confused, trying things. And then when the West Side stuff came about, it was, you know, it confused me a little bit. The the whole, you know, eight sets of three with only, you know, 50% of your max. Like I, I didn't quite understand all that because I had the mentality of working hard and, and pushing yourself and going to failure and, you know, sweating and, and everything had to be like, all out effort every second. I wasn't understanding like, well, what, how come on one day they train with submaximal weights and, but the other day they do train heavy. And as I learned it more and I understood it, then it started to make sense. 
And then I, I experimented on myself and got the strongest I ever had been, the most powerful I've ever been in my life and started putting it together and realizing like, wait, this is, they, they market this or people think of this as a powerlifting program, but what is, this program is based on what? It's based on force and velocity. They have max effort days and they have dynamic effort days. You know, every football player needs, you know, some kind of a combination of those two characteristics. And then, you know, Westside throws in their, their rep days or their sub-max training special exercises to bring up your weak points. And I was like, wow, like that's tailor-made for football. Basically, speed and strength, uh, force and velocity, bringing up weak points with uh, some muscle building and some special exercises. I love the way that he rotates the workouts to, to prevent people from the athletes from getting bored and it keeps it interesting and exciting. And it, I just loved it. It made sense. And I got bigger, I got stronger, I got more explosive. And this is after all my back surgeries and having a tumor removed and nerve damage. And I was like, man, if, if I'm in kind of the, the best shape of my life training like this, like imagine what a younger, healthy kid, uh, would do. And so I started just experimenting on some of my high school kids. And then there were a few things that they couldn't handle. You know, that's where I'm young and inexperienced. I was trying to, uh, you know, do, do West side, so to speak, which, you know, I know is impossible unless you're actually at that gym, but I was doing my best to duplicate it at, you know, word for word as, as much as I can, based on what I was reading from Louie and the couple of visits I took there for Dave Tate seminars. And I realized there were some things that needed to be changed that only came through experience. And that's when the West side for skinny bastards came about those little tweaks, like not having a barbell on their back twice a week, every week, I, instead of, you know, doing dynamic effort squats on dynamic effort, lower body days, we started doing, jumps and med ball throws and sprints and we started incorporating more unilateral work and instead of dynamic effort bench presses we did more med ball throws and plyo push-up variations and just little by little you start tweaking things and i i mean these kids started transforming i documented it i i wrote it in an article and the thing to this day is still the most popular article i've ever written the original west side for skinny bastards i I mean, it's gotten millions and millions of views, downloads, comments. It's it's crazy. But I'm not not to sound arrogant, but I'm not surprised because it works. I didn't make one thing up. Everything I wrote about and continue to write about, it's all based on experience and things I've done. I've never written an article. I've never given advice if it's not something I have personally done and or I have tried with you know, at least dozens and dozens of athletes, if not hundreds or thousands, you know, before I will talk about it and, and speak confidently about it. And that's, the, you know, kind of the origin of the West Side for Skinny Bastards. Yeah, I, I remember reading that stuff back in the day. I, I think, I mean, shoot, it was probably at least 10 years ago that that uh, yeah. was really popular. 
Um, I was 2004, ca- I think, or five. So it's over. It's like 12 years ago now, 13 years. Wow. Uh, that's that's because I yeah I remember because I mean I would have fit myself very much into that category back then. I was like, oh yeah, maybe I need to do a little bit more, uh, you know, less less uh, heavy barbells as often. And and it's actually cool. I always feel like the practice is ahead of the science. And and I've been listening to like a lot of Christian Thibodeau stuff lately on typing different athletes and how yep. those hard gainers I need less frequency of like the heavy loading and i'm like well you were doing you know you were practicing it and you figured it out and and you found that they were adapting to that better than loading them up twice a week i think that's that's really cool stuff um you can't beat experience to me it is the best teacher i you know you respect the science i'm still into it anytime a new study comes out and people send me stuff uh you know i'm obviously always interested in what's going on in this field i always will be but I definitely am more of a, a gym guy. Like, I, I can't tell you how many studies I've read that contradict things that I do and I know work and have worked for thousands of athletes, but a study will come out, you know, based on 12 athletes over a six week period. And all of a sudden, I'm getting 9 million emails from people saying, see, that article you wrote was wrong. It was proven wrong. And I'm like, do you really think I'm going to stop doing this because one study was done with 12 kids? Uh, I've been doing this for 20 years. I know it works. Sometimes the research matches, you know, what I, what I've been doing or what I already know. Sometimes it doesn't, but that's why I've always been confident in, I know I'm not the smartest guy, but at the same time, I know I I'm not biased towards any one type of training. I don't sell any, you know, equipment based on any of my training styles. Like, I just do the things that work and I, I think work the best. There's no bias there. So uh, I just speak about things that have worked in the past. Doesn't mean you know you don't learn more and, and you might change some things. I'm doing some things different now than I was 10 years ago, but you can't take away the results. And to me, that's all that matters. I don't care what a, a, some scientist thinks of me all I care about is the athletes that have hired me and what they say about training with Joe DeFranco or DeFranco's. Did they get that you know scholarship they wanted? Did they run that 40 time they needed to run? Did they get that big contract? That's all that matters at the end of the day for me, not some, some guy in a lab coat telling me I'm stupid and I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, it doesn't really affect me. Yeah, it's, 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 all, it's always, and I've, I've learned this especially to myself is, what works is the only thing that matters, not what yes. the research, latest research said. Because I mean, the populations are so different too in labs, and it's all it's all a little bit. Everything's got its own little. Every research study has its own little unique slant. And uh, of course, yeah. context is everything, and it's so hard for one research study to account for every athlete you're going to ever train for the rest of your life, every athlete I'm going to ever train. Like it's just you take everything with a grain of salt, so to speak, and. Uh, you know, you respect what's going on, you know, but at the end of the day, you got to get in the gym. That, that's another Louis Simmons quote, you know, something to the effect. He says all the answers to all your training problems are solved in the gym or, you know, the answers are in the gym. And, and I agree with that 100 percent. Yeah, I uh, with the uh, with the West Side too. So the original West Side, like before the Skinny Bastards, because that is like the biggest thing is the Skinny Bastards for sure. But the original, uh, you started with Louis Simmons West Side template. How did you start? Kind of uh, the, what were some of the subtle modifications or subtle craftings of that you were making with those original, you know, fire plug, big strong football guys? Yeah, that I mean, 
it originally I was doing it kind of as written and those were the the original tweaks were um the single leg we did a lot more single leg accessory movements um on the lower body days that was something that at that time I think they are doing it more uh you at west side now even with their powerlifters just you know learning that mobility they could benefit from a little more mobility and uh some unilateral work and that was one of the original tweaks is after we squatted or deadlifted we always did some kind of lunge variation um or a, a step up variation some kind of unilateral uh work just to open up not not only for the unilateral strength because most sports are played predominantly on one leg you know sprinting and cutting and uh it, it was even more so for the mobility aspect of it is because a lot of guys when they're from box squatting or doing a lot of deadlifting they'll get stronger but they sit in school all day and they're driving to the gym stuck in traffic so they always be complaining that their hip flexors were tight their groin was tight so that unilateral work doing things like rear foot elevated split squats with the front foot elevated slightly as well to get a a little deeper range of motion um reverse lunges with the front foot elevated on a four inch box higher box step ups things like that were where we're getting the best bang for our buck both from a strength standpoint and a mobility standpoint that was that was big and then just some of the accessory exercises were different we do maybe some more dumbbell work with the upper body we'd throw in more chin-ups i didn't see them doing um too much chin-ups at in in west side with the actual powerlifters sometimes on max effort upper body day if i was training a wrestler i would choose a chin-up variation as the max effort exercise instead of it always being a bench press you know those were some of the the original tweaks and then we started getting into incorporating box jumps and sprints and med ball throws on the dynamic days and just making it more athletic overall and that's kind of it's still a system i I pretty much my go-to system if you were going to make me choose only one type of training for for my athletes for the rest of my life that would be my go-to system you know as far as strength is concerned you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah, I, I like that description. Like, like the heart of the system is is just fuels those those uh, strong, big, strong fire plug football players. But then you made the rest of it more athletic and and the single yeah. leg and and uh, I I was almost I was just talking with my Mike Robertson on two podcasts ago about like that idea of yeah you start with the the main lifts but then you go into all the balancing out movements and restoring the the function and variability and I I like that it's it's just it's always good to hear that from uh, great coaches who have put it into practice and and, and how you kind of came up with that on your own t- intuition too and that was probably before all the internet days where everyone was reading all these articles and stuff on uh you know this says this and uh yeah it, it's funny because it seemed it is so I mean to me it's so simple but I guess 15 years ago it, it was considered pretty innovative but it's like yeah I mean if if you hit the gym for a little while and and start training like you you would have figured it out too it's, it's not that hard and now it's just kind of funny that that was considered like wow that that's what, what an amazing tweak to the program it's like yeah it's just kind of common sense if you if you lifted and you're an athlete it's no, I think most people would have come to that conclusion, you know. That's that's great. Uh, 
And then, so speaking of single leg training too, uh, have you, has the single leg work evolved into, are you using that on your max, any of the max effort stuff or dynamic effort stuff now, or is that still staying bilateral? Yeah, no, we, we, we throw that in as well, especially more speaking of, it de- again, it depends on the athlete and we'd never have one, you know, there's no real hard set rules in anything we do, but working still with a lot of American football players, we're especially Cameron Joss at my facility who's working with more athletes than I am at this point. He's got a bunch of skill guys. He's got some running backs, uh, excuse me, receivers and kind of the, the further away you get from the ball and football, he has been doing, he's been having those guys do their max effort work primarily uh, unilaterally now. So he's doing a lot of, we have like an open hex bar. So we'll do heavy Bulgarian split squats with a hex bar an open hex bar, um, a stationary split squat with a safety bar on, on their back, a reverse lunge with a, with a safety bar. It's just, we have like three or four variations we've been using and, and going heavy with, and I mean, it's been working incredibly well he's been monitoring everything we we have the 1080 we have the fully electronic timing devices so we're really able to monitor um speed and power with without any human error anymore and it has been working big time like i'm even shocked we've always gotten great results but i'll see what he's having guys do and then the results they're getting in you know as short as like a four to six week period guys shaving tenths of a second off their 40 times fully electric uh it's pretty remarkable so yeah that is one of the the tweaks we've made and it's so far um it's been working pretty well yeah i like i like what you said there too and that's that's great with the single leg stuff i just always I always enjoy hearing those anecdotes of, of how that can work for those athletes. I like that's actually the second time I've heard it. The farther away from the ball you get, like using that as the spectrum a little bit, and, and yeah, the more um, with football, it just it, if you know football, it makes sense. The guys that are further away are they're it's more velocity dominant. You know, the the guys closer to the ball, the linemen, it's more force dominant, and we're doing more bilateral bilateral work with them more pure strength work max effort work you get further away it's more speed it's more dynamic the max effort work we do do is uh becoming predominantly single leg stuff so uh it's a good yeah it's a good little general rule to follow and it's been working well for us yeah i like that a lot i wanted to go back really quickly too to the uh, this, the West Side for Skinny Bastards program and kind of were there any kind of main steps or things that you uh, really could like put your finger on along the way that were leading to like, hey, let's maybe these guys will do better with the bar off their back an extra day or what were some steps in the evolution of that particular program? <laughs> yes, uh, pretty simple. I had a lot of high school kids complaining that their low backs uh, were hurting um, all the time and I'm very sensitive to that uh, with my history of low back issues you know mine weren't anything i could deal with my a lot of people know my story i had a tumor that developed in my spine at 17 so i've been through hell as far as low back pain low back surgeries Uh, i defranco's is is still known i think as like kind of a a meathead type of quote-unquote hardcore type of gym for athletes A a lot of people still think all we do is lift weights and lift heavy and 
yes, I love strength and, you know, we don't overlook it, but it's certainly, it's just one of the components. We we're doing everything. We kind of pride ourselves on being like the mixed martial arts of training athletes. We don't just specialize in one thing. We spend a ton of time on mobility, speed work, you know, jumps and, and explosive strength type of work, not just lifting, but, um, the, the, you know, that could, that misconception of all they do is lift, lift, lift. Actually, we're probably more conservative than people think because again, going back to those days of having these young high school kids, you know, coming to me on Thursdays and going, Oh shit, we're, we're squatting again today. And, you know, I'd be like, well, it's a, it's a light, don't worry. It's lighter weights. We're going to go lighter, but we're going to move the weight fast. And they would still kind of be like, Oh man, I got, don't really feel like putting that bar on my back. Like my back's kind of tight from Monday still. And, you know, one or two kids say that to you, it's no big deal when a lot start coming to you with that. Um, I was never one of those coaches to just be like, ah, suck it up. You're young, you know, and which a lot of people do with high school kids. It's unfortunate because they could get away with more. And then that low back, you know, pain or, or tightness that they're having probably most of the time isn't going to really turn into anything until they're in college. So the, the guy who was training them when they were in high school, kind of, you know, it's out of his hands and he could go blame someone else because that, you know, they don't end up having surgery until five years down the road, but that wasn't going to be me. You know, as soon as I, I started hearing that I was, like, you know what, they, they're probably not ready. And, and I've had, you would consider our clientele definitely a more advanced group of high school kids. And I'm saying if they're kind of complaining and I'm watching them, I know their technique is good. You know, we've always focused on core strength and, you know, even with all other factors being pretty, I don't want to say perfect because it's never perfect, but pretty good. They're all complaining about this. We need to make a change, but I don't, I still love this system of a max effort day and a dynamic effort day. So what's another way that we could, you know, do something dynamic on dynamic effort, lower body day. And then obviously it's not, you know, too hard to figure out. You could say, okay, if I'm not going to do a dynamic effort squat, we're not, the Olympic lifts would probably be kind of the same type of thing. Cause they're technical. You're still using a barbell. What's next jumps and throws. And then it just became, all right, we'll make Thursday is going to be more of a box jump variation days. It's the, the easiest on your body as far as, you know, landing uh, onto the box. You're not landing with all your body weight, you know, coming back down and landing on the ground. So let's start doing a bunch of box jump variations and see how that works. And I mean, within weeks, no more low back pain and guys were improving their mobility and their power and they were feeling better. You know, vertical jumps were going through the roof. The sprint times were starting to come down. So it almost became a better option. And then that evolved into different jump variations and then single leg jump variations for the more advanced athletes and where we are today with the programming. Yeah, I, I like that story. It, it just makes me think, too, of like the need to uh, be present and the, the human side of it and listen to your athletes more so than looking 
for every, you know, what was the last article? And I got to read this art, you know, like just yeah. being present, learning from your athletes. I like that stuff. Uh, so I got uh, the last round here. I got some kind of quick lightning round questions for you, Joe. Um, and so the first one, you mentioned pull-ups a little bit, adding that, um, that, that being something that was kind of outside the West side system a little bit. But what do you think is the number one upper body lift for athletes interested in speed jumping or just being an athlete? Or would you say pull-ups are in that uh, category for yeah. you? I would probably, if I had to pick one upper body lift, it, it would be pull-ups, and not just because of what it does. Like obviously, getting your upper back, you know, is is important for a lot of different things. But I think more of what it is an indicator of. So I, I, I love having chin-ups in the program just because it is a great indicator of, of whether or not you know you're you're getting faster. Obviously, it's a great test of relative strength. So if you do eight chin-ups and then, you know, 12 weeks later, your bench improved, your squat improved, but now you're only doing five chin-ups, there's, there's a good chance you maybe put on some unnecessary weight or your, your speed is not going to be quite where it was. You know, you got maximally stronger, but your relative strength decreased. So I love the chin-up just because it's such a great indicator of sprinting speed and jumping ability as well. So that, that would have to be my number one. Yeah, I, I do like that. I heard you had mentioned, it made me think too about, uh, I think Dan John had said that. He's like, people start doing more chips and then for some reason it seemed like they were running faster. Like they're just connecting everything. Because you know, that's, again, to the, the point of, you know, if, if, I, if I put a gun to your head and I said, hey, you know, if you could improve your chin-ups, I'm going to give you a million dollars. If you could go from 10 to 20, I'm going to give you a million dollars. It's not just about doing more chin-ups. You would think, well, what else can I do to help improve my chin-ups? If you have 22% body fat, just by going and seeing a nutritionist and cleaning up your diet and getting rid of some of that body fat without even touching a weight, that's going to improve your chin-ups. And if you do that, chances are you're probably going to get faster just by if you could drop 10 pounds of fat there's a good chance that you're probably going to run a little faster so you know that's that's a great point it's just it's getting better at chin-ups a whole bunch of other things usually get better too because of what's required to get better at chin-ups yeah lots lots of connections there for sure yeah you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster uh, so next question, I'm excited to ask you this one because I've read some of your, uh, like with, in your vertical jump writings, you talk about the big toe and these things. Uh, so <laughs> talk about, and I've been doing a ton of foot stuff late, like learn, the feet have been one of my big learning points this last year. And so what's your take on f- training like the foot, the toes, uh, anything related to the lower leg? Is this something you still utilize uh, and, and just general take on that? And it's, Cameron still jokes about the uh, the flexor halogus longus, yeah, yes. the, the training the big toe of... Uh, in my vertical jump article on T Nation, um, which again, it's great for an article, and there is some merit to that. But overall, it is tra- training your feet. Is we talk a lot about training economy and getting the best bang for your buck. You, you don't need to do specific, you know, big toe training or, or foot training. I think just that simply warming up barefoot, you know, most of the time, uh, strength training, doing most of your Exercise. We have a lot of guys squatting and deadlifting and, and just going around the gym. As long as obviously the floor is is clean, you don't have anything that they could step on. Um, it, the 
the reason why it's so beneficial is because, you know, we live in a day and age where everybody wants the newest, you know, Jordans and fancy sneakers. And the I feel like as sneakers continue to evolve, they're getting more and more cushion and you got these big thick soles on those things. And yeah, they look cool. They're stylish. But I tell my athletes, it's almost like the equivalent of somebody walking around with their arm in a sling all day. You know, it's that that shoe almost acts like a cast for your foot you got these nice soft pillowy comfort comfortable sneakers but because of that what you know the muscles and the 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 soft the tendons the ligaments the soft tissue like what's going on the bones your feet they just kind of they atrophy like if your arm was in a sling for a month what would happen like the muscles would get smaller they'd get weaker they'd get tighter that's what's happening with wearing these big cushiony shoes all the time. So taking your shoes off and strengthening the feet makes a world of difference with performance, injury prevention, ankle mobility, um, and then doing some direct work. Like within the warm-up, we always roll out the feet. You know, smashing the feet with a lacrosse ball is probably as far as the best bang for your buck mobility-wise for your entire body. If you know, you asked me the number one upper body exercise. If you were going to say you could only do one mobility drill for the rest of your life, what would it be? It would be smash the bottom of your feet because of the implications it has on the entire body. If you ever hear the book Anatomy Trains by yeah. um, Thomas Myers. Yeah. He, he talks about the superficial back line, which is basically – it. If the whole point of anatomy trains is how everything is connected, you know, and he talks about this superficial back line where there is a line of fascia that starts from the bottom of your feet and goes all the way up to the base of your neck where and it's all connected. So by rolling out the bottom of your feet, you could improve that mobility in your calves, your hamstrings, your low back, even your upper back just by you know, softening up that tissue and mobilizing the the bottom of your feet. Um, it's it's remarkable. Try it sometimes. Just do a basic stand up and try to touch your toes. See how far you could get, and then really spend a minute or two on each foot. Really, uh, you know, get some good pressure rolling out both feet, and then retest and watch how much better your flexibility is without ever touching your calves, your hamstrings, your low back. It's phenomenal. So um, I know it's a long-winded answer, but I think it's so important. Strengthening and, and mobilizing the bottom of your feet will have such major implications on your entire body, yet not a lot of people uh, are doing it. So I can't recommend it enough. Yeah. I like we said, bang for the buck there. Like I imagine, and too, like, like people who maybe grow up like playing soccer barefoot in Brazil. Like they probably don't need to be doing the big, their feet are already strong. They don't need to be doing that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cool. Uh, Next question. Uh, So what's the deal with 50 rep rhythm squats? Uh (laughs) (laughs) That was one of those things. I, before I had enough experience of my own, uh, there were coaches that I looked up to and that had more experience than me that recommended that exercise. So I put it into my programming and it was basically these 50 rep squats where you would do 10 quarter squats and then you would do 10 quarter squats up onto your toes and then back to 10 quarter squats and you'd do that for 50 reps. And you know, it was supposed to train like the, the elasticity of your Achilles tendon or something. Maybe 
it works, but for me and my athletes, again, all the answers lie in the gym. It made sense when I first heard about it, although I, I was always kind of skeptical because I was like, 50 reps for improving a vertical jump, like that's kind of counterintuitive to just quick, short burst, you know, alactic, you know, anaerobic, explosive activities, like ah, 50 reps, I don't know, but a lot of people that are smarter than me are saying it works. I never really saw the results that they claimed that it gave, so I haven't done them in about 10 to 12 years. They've been they've been off the list, but I tried. Yeah, I always thought that was interesting too, especially like that fast twitch football player that probably does best with low reps. Like I could see like I don't know, like a, a slower twitch person maybe, or a real fashionable slow twitch person maybe getting some out of it. But it was yeah, just yeah, the way it was explained at the time, I was like, oh, all right, maybe this is one of those exceptions to the rules. But I, I never saw any major uh, improvements in jumping ability from that exercise, and it was just tough because the bars like bouncing up and down <laughs> off people's backs. It was just just a rough exercise. So we. Uh, <laughs> Hey, you got to be honest. You, we, I tried it. I'm, I'm honest enough to admit it didn't work. That was a mistake. We don't do it anymore. Yeah. Well, hey, that's. I, I love it that you have that that honesty, and and it would be fun to watch too. Like just people like you know that 50 reps, bars bounce up and down. Like, why am I doing this? But Joe DeFranco told me to do it. Please, no more. It's, I take that one back. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, next question. Uh, so. So core training, uh, what's stupid and what's important? I, I think all the high rep crap on the floor and, and, and feeling the burn, like any, anything you hear in the mainstream uh, you know, fitness community is probably pretty stupid. Or, you know what, nothing's really stupid. I think not, not worth your time if you're an athlete and after performance. The best way to get your core stronger is learn how to breathe properly. Um, three-dimensionally you know learning to use your diaphragm um circumferential uh, breathing we we call it it's uh that and and just learning how to brace properly and lift without a belt most of the time every now and then if you're doing you know max effort squats or deadlifts you throw a belt on but just learning i tell tell my my athletes like picking dumbbells up and taking them off the rack putting them back uh learning how to breathe and brace and lift without a belt is going to be the best core training uh, th that you're going to get. The number one role of your core isn't to flex the the spine, or it, it, you know, it's not to flex and extend. It's to stabilize while your extremities move. So, when if you do want to throw a little extra, you want to do some correct uh, direct core work at the end of your workout. Best bang for your buck is to do anti movement type exercises, plank variations, anti-rotation, uh, something like a pile-off press or a, an anti-rotation alphabet with a, a band that's anchored lateral to you, you know, off to the side. And um, th those type of, of anti-movement patterns as opposed to getting on the floor and doing a bunch of crunches or sit-ups, that, that's going to give you the best bang for your buck with core training. Yeah, I like it's kind of like almost like the barefoot approach. Like you're you're, you're making a yeah. lifestyle, something they're thinking about in, in everything. Uh, so the last two questions I had, we kind of already covered the answers. So maybe I'll ask uh, just one on um, so training the hamstrings. Uh, quick take on training the hamstrings and athletes and and approaching that. I think just being conscious of training both functions. I think most people know this, but if you have you know younger coaches, uh, trainers listening to train both hip extension and knee flexion, and most predominantly 
uh, hip extension with with most younger athletes just going back to when I was younger and and seeing the programming of most younger high school age kids a there's usually no hamstring work in there I we we call it the mirror effect they only train the muscles they could see in the mirror so you know advice number one train your hamstrings and number two I, I would focus more on the the hip extension function uh, but know that it's got two functions and, and you want to you want to incorporate both into your programming with us now defranco's 2017 we have uh in the off season we'll have like a hip extension dominant day and then on the other day we'll train knee flexion for our direct hamstring work just to make sure we're we're covering covering our uh you know all bases awesome man well hey i think that that does it for the questions today i know we're both kind of running out of time uh but uh busy, minute, right? busy man busy man no it's a thank you so much for for being on the show today joe I, I really appreciate you being here learning from your wisdom experience all the things that you've put together with athletes over time uh and it's just been amazing to have you so thank you again thank you for having me man i had a lot of fun i appreciate it That does it for another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Thanks for being with us today, and we'll see you next week with another great guest. In the meantime, please check out our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. They have an amazing blog dedicated to athletic performance, as well as products anywhere from force plates all the way down to personal EMS units. Amazing company, amazing customer service. Definitely check them out with your athletic performance needs. We'll see you again next week. Until then, have a good one.